0: This is David R. Wellen's Reading Literature. It's a new podcast, and we're going to try to enlighten you as to, uh, in this section, uh, this initial section, the Romantic Period of English Literature. Um, my take is my text, uh, The Norton Anthology of English Literature, the Romantic Period. And I ask... Um, um, if anyone, uh, if anyone out there wants to donate to this cause, um, to donate to uh, sponsoring this um, this uh, reading podcast, um, uh, please uh, use your Zelle app, um, especially on your Wells Fargo online app, and uh, donate to. David R. Wellens at gmail, gmail, gmail gmail.com. I'll be happy to accept any donations, um, to help make this, uh, make this, um, revolution or not revolution, uh, renaissance of literature, um, of the romantic period, especially, um, more, um, more rewarding for everyone. Uh, I'll be able to, I'll be able to free up more time and get the, uh, Get the advertisements out so that more people can join in. Thank you very much. And here we go. This is the Romantic Period, 1785 to 1832. In 1787, the establishment of the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Trade of Enslaves. In 1789 to 1815, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Period in France. In seventeen eighty nine. Revolution begins with the assembly of the Estates General in May and the storming of the Bastille on july fourteenth of seventeen ninety three. Seventeen ninety three King Louis uh, the 16th was executed and England joins the alliance against France. And then seventeen ninety three to ninety four that Reign of Terror under Arub Spear 1804. Napoleon was crowned emperor, 1815. I mean, 1815, Napoleon defeated at Waterloo. 1807, British slave trade outlawed slavery, abolished throughout the empire, the West Indies included, 26 years later. And in 1811 to 1820, the Regency, George, Prince of Wales, acts as Regent for George III, who has been declared incurably insane, and then 1819, the Peterloo Massacre, 1820, the accession of George IV, 1830, the accession of William IV, and 1832, passage of the Reform Bill in Parliament. Now, that's just a timeline of the Romantic period, um, historically speaking. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna embark on a on a read of a section uh, to start out this uh, series of uh, podcasts, and um, and this is um, this is basically um, uh, about the Romantic period. It goes the Romantic period, though by far the shortest is at least as complex and diverse as any other period in British literary history, and it is, tellingly, demarcated differently than any of the other eras that literary historians and anthologists include in their timelines. By convention, the boundaries delimiting those other epochs are either set by the reigns of monarchs so that we have the Elizabethan and Victorian ages, named for two long reigning queens, or conceptualized as coinciding with the openings and closings of centuries, as with the volume of this one anthology titled, the 20th and 21st centuries. The date usually serving as the terminus of the Romantic Age, 1832, represents a contrast to this pattern strongly associated, as it is, with a signal political event, the first major reform of the British Parliament. A diverse range of dates have been identified as marking off the beginning of the Romanic period, but almost always each of these two is associated with an event of tremendous political and social impact. As some scholars tell it, the new era began in 1776, the year Americans declared their independence. Others single out 1783, when shattering military defeat at the hands of those Americans dealt a blow to the credibility of Britain's ruling elites. And many settle on 1789, the year that launched democratic revolution in France, a should in decades of fierce political unrest in Britain in its turn and laid the ground for a war between the British and French empires and their allies that would envelop an entire generation and take almost the whole of the globe as its theatre. Although politics has often provided a framework for the Romantic period, as such, arrangements for puritization suggest The fascination and provocation that this moment of cultural watershed presents for students of literary history have equally to do with another peculiarity in its construction. The romantic is also the sole period that is named after a literary form, the romance. A great scholarly achievement of the later 18th century had been the recovery from obscurity of the medieval romances, previously ignored by literary historians, more concerned with the classical influences, and the Romantic period witnessed a reevaluation of those wild-verse tales of adventure, chivalry, and, lo- and love. Exactly the traits, their barbarous deviations from probability and rationality, their unabashed fictionality, the fantasies they induced in their readers that once justified medieval romances fall into oblivion were seen anew as commentators moved from lauding the room for idealization and visionary imagination that romance had afforded pre-modern writers to proposing that modern literature should follow suit and become, in one sense, more romantic too. At a moment, when real political events themselves seemed to entail improbabilities and impossibilities, for example, the common people proclaiming independence from their rulers, that rehabilitation of romance was, in addition, spurred by the period's probing of the relation between what William Codwin, in his subtitle to his 1794 novel, Caleb Williams called things as they are and the alternative worlds that imagination could summon into being. What is now proved was once only imagined, William Blake declared in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in 1790. His declaration is imbued with the new sense of power that poets, those professional imaginers, were inclined to claim... At this moment when the literary imagination appeared in new ways both to speak and to, to, to speak to and to guide historical change, and when political philosophy gained a new authority in and through poetry and fiction. About a hundred years ago, the Cambridge history of English literature segmented the era that this volume covers in two parts, tidally divvying off the period of the French Revolution from 1789 to 1815, from a subsequent period of romance revival that filled in the years between the defeat of Napoleonic France and the ascent of Queen Victoria. The messier option of Treating the era as a single entity equips us better to do justice to its complex multiplicity. In refraining from the attempts to distangle romance from history and literary from political change, we can better see how this period, in confronting their entanglements, originated the questions about the relations of art and activism aesthetics and politics that trouble us still. We can better see, too, how the notions of poetic autonomy that were involved in the rehabilitation of romances, extravagant, untrammeled fictionality, were likewise forged under the pressure of political events and how the reconception of the relation of the Present to the past at stake in this recovery of a lost literary tradition often entails, well, imagining a new political future. Since the days of the old Cambridge history, we have likewise begun to engage with a greater range of literary accomplishments, thereby recognizing the centrifugal energies and the eclecticism distinguishing this era even as its authors firmly believed themselves to be participating in a common temporal period. Recent scholarship has expanded or re-expanded a canon formerly centered on introspective lyric poems inspired by poets' encounters with objects in or features of the natural world, abolitionist songs, ballads and ballad imitations, Turkish tales, Favorite Forms of Byron's Versified Fairy Tales Letitia Landon's Fairy of the Fountains Poems in which nature does not preempt a human speaker's meditation, but rather speaks itself John Clare's Swords Well In Anna Barbold's Mouse's Petition And in Prose, Travelogues, Table Talk, Gothic Novels, and Historical Romances all now get numbered among the forms of romantic literature, a more capacious category than, than it was in the past. And whereas earlier criticism, especially during the third quarter of the 20th century, developed accounts of a unified romanticism by extrapolating from the writings of the six male poets that it had singled out for attention, Blake, Wordsworth, and Coleridge in the first generation, and Byron, Shelley, and Keats in the second. We are readier to stress the friction among these figures, whose poetic and social aspirations divided as well as united them. We are also readier to accept that the work of women writers helped make this exciting period what it is. The conspicuous presence on the literary scene of a new female literature, and the poetesses producing it to use the quaint phraseology of the male reviewers and the fact more generally that this was the most prolific age of literary production ever seen in european history attracted much commentary and some lament the learned lady or blue stocking one critic complained in 1823 and i quote is a creature of modern growth and capable of existing only in such times as the present. End quote. Now that's the first section. Um, this section is called Revolution and Reaction. During these times, oh, and by the way, um, just to remind you, uh, donations are greatly appreciated to keep this uh, series going. Um, you can you can zell uh, you can zell donations to. David R. Wellens at gmail.com. And that's for David Wellens. Um, so uh, David R. Wellens, Wellens W E W E L L E N S. That's David Wellens. And uh, any any um any donation is appreciated. Thank you very much through Zell. The um uh, in this section, this section is called Revolution and Reaction. During these times, and this, and by the way, this is um, this is introduction, and later I'll be reading the poetry um, as it exists um, in this anthology. Um, but right now we're getting an introduction to the period and its historical context. Revolution and Reaction During these times, England was experiencing the ordeal of change from a primarily agricultural society where wealth and power had been concentrated in the landholding aristocracy to a modern industrial nation, and this change occurred, as mentioned earlier, in a context of revolution in America, then France, then Haiti, of counter-revolution, of war, of economic cycles of inflation and oppression, and of the constant threat to the social structure from imported revolutionary ideologies, to which the ruling classes responded by the repression of traditional liberties. The early period of the French Revolution, marked by the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Storming of the Bastille, evoked enthusiastic support from English liberals and radicals alike. Three important books epitomize the radical social thinking stimulated by the Revolution. Murray Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Men in 1790 justified the revolution against Edmund Burke's attack in his Reflections on the Revolution in France 1790. Thomas Paine's Rights of Man 1791-92 also advocated for England a democratic republic that was to be achieved if lesser pressures failed by a popular revolution. More important, as an influence on Wordsworth and Percy Shelley, was Godwin's Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, 1793, which foretold an inevitable but peaceful evolution of society to a final stage in which property would be equally distributed and government would wither away. But English sympathizers dropped off as the revolution followed its increasingly grim course. The accession to power by Jacobin extremists intent on purifying their new Republic by purging it of its enemies. The September massacres of the imprisoned nobility in 1792, followed by the execution of the King and Queen, the new French Republic's invasion of the Rhineland and the Netherlands, which brought England into the war against France the guillotining of thousands in the reign of terror under Robespierre, and after the execution, in their turn of the men who had directed the terror, the emergence of Napoleon, first as dictator, then as emperor of France. And Wordsworth wrote in the prelude, Become oppressors in their turn. Frenchmen had changed a war of self-defense, for one of conquest, losing sight of all which they had struggled for. And that this lines that's uh, lines eleven point two oh six to two oh nine. Napoleon, the brilliant tactician, whose rise through the ranks of the army, has seemed to epitomize the egalitarian principles of the revolution, had become an arch aggressor, a despot, and would be founder, of a new imperial dynasty. By 1800, liberals found they had no side they could wholeheartedly espouse. Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815 proved to be the triumph not of progress and reform, but of reactionary despotism throughout continental Europe. And this year, accordingly, the debates about the legitimacy of the ruling class and about patrician degeneracy that figures such as Godwin, Payne, and Wollandstonecraft had launched in the early 1790s, returned with a vengeance. From start to finish, this was the period of harsh, repressive measures. Public meetings were prohibited in 1795. The right of habeas corpus, which is the legal principle protecting individuals from arbitrary imprisonment, was suspended for the first time in over a hundred years, and advocates of even moderate political change were charged with treason. Efforts during these war years to, repel, to repeal the laws that barred Protestants who did not conform to the Anglican Church from the universities and government came to nothing. In the new climate of counter-revolutionary alarm, it was easy to portray even a slight abridgment of the privileges of the established church as a measure that validating the Jacobins' campaigns to, the, to, to de-Christianize France would aid the enemy cause. Another early casualty of this counter-revolution was the movement to abolish the slave trade, a cause supported initially, by a wide cross section of English society. In the 1780s and 1790s, numerous writers, both white, Anna Letitia Barbauld, Coleridge, and Hannah Moore, and black, Otaba Koguana, and Aluda Equano, attacked the greed of the owners of the West Indian sugar plantations and detailed the horrors of the traffic. In African flesh, that provided them with their labor power, but the bloodshed that accompanied political change in France strengthened the hand of apologists for slavery by making any manner of reform seem the prelude to violent insurrection. Parliament rejected a bill abolish, abolishing the trade in seventeen ninety one, and sixteen years marked by slave rebellions and by planters, brutal reprisals elapsed before it passed a new version of the bill. The frustration of the abolitionist cause is an emblematic chapter in the larger story of how a reactionary government sacrificed hopes of reform while it's mobilized the nation's resources for war. Yet this was the very time when economic and social changes were creating a desperate need for corresponding changes in political arrangements. For one thing, new classes inside England, manufacturing rather than agricultural, were beginning to demand a voice in government proportionate to their wealth. The Industrial Revolution, the shift in in manufacturing that resulted from the invention of power-driven machinery to replace hand labor, had begun in the mid-18th century, with improvements in machines for processing textiles, and was given immense impetus when James Watt perfected the steam engine in 1765. In the succeeding decades, steam replaced wind and water as the primary source of power for all sorts of manufacturing processes, beginning that dynamic of ever accelerating economic expansion, and technological development that we still identify as the hallmark of the modern age. A new laboring population massed in sprawling mill towns, such as Manchester, whose population increased by a factor of five in 50 years. In agricultural communities, the destruction of home industry was accompanied by the acceleration of the process of enclosing open fields and wastelands, usually in fact commons, that had provided the means of subsist- subsistence for entire communities, and incorporating them into larger privately owned holdings. Enclosures was, enclosure was by and large necess- necessary for the more efficient methods of agriculture required to feed the nation's growing population although some of the land that the wealthy acquired through parliamentary acts of disclosure or enclosure, they, in fact, incorporated into their private estates. But enclosure was socially destructive, breaking up villages, creating a landless class, who either migrated to the industrial towns or remained as farm laborers, subsisting on starvation wages, and the little they could obtain from parish charity. The landscape of England began to take on its modern appearance, the hitherto open rural areas subdivided into a checkerboard of fields enclosed by hedges and stone walls, with the factories of the cities casting a pall of smoke over vast areas of cheaply built houses and slum tenements. Meanwhile, the population was increasingly polarized, into what Benjamin Disraeli later called the two nations, the two classes of capital and labor, the rich and the poor. No attempt was made to regulate this shift from the old economic world to the new, since even liberal reformers were committed to the philosophy of laissez-faire. This theory of let alone set out in Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations in 1776 Holds that the general welfare can be assured only by the free operations of economic laws. The government should maintain a policy of strict non-interference and lead people to pursue unfettered their private interests. On the one hand, laissez-faire thinking might have helped pave the way for the long-postponed emancipation of the slave population of the West Indies. By 1833, When Parliament finally ended slavery, the anomaly that their unfree labor represented for the new economic and social orthodoxies (coughs) evidently (coughs) had become intolerable. But for the great majority of the laboring class at home, the results of laissez-faire and the freedom of contract it secured were inadequate wages and long hours of work under harsh discipline and in sordid conditions. Investigators reports on the coal mines where male and female children of 10 or even 5 years of age were harnessed to heavy coal sledges that they dragged by crawling on their hands and knees read like some scenes (coughs) from Dante's Inferno with the end of the war in 1815 the nation's workforce was enlarged by demobilized troops at the very moment when demand for manufactured goods, until, until now augmented by the needs of the military, fell dramatically. The result was an unemployment crisis that persisted through the 1820s. Because the workers had no vote and were prevented from law by law from unionizing. Their only resources were partitions, protest meetings, and riots, to which the ruling class responded with even more repressive measures. The introduction of new machinery into the mills resulted in further loss of jobs, provoking sporadic attempts by the displaced workers to destroy the machines. After one such outbreak, of Luddite machine breaking, the House of Lords, despite Byron's eloquent protest, passed a bill in 1812, making death the penalty for destroying the frames used for weaving in the stocking industry. In 1819, hundreds of thousands of workers organized meetings in demand, uh, to demand parliamentary reforms. In August of that year, a huge, but uh, a orderly assembly at St. Peter's Fields, Manchester, was charged by saber wielding saber wielding troops, who killed nine and injured hundreds more. This was the notorious Peterloo Massacre, so named with sardonic reference to the Battle of Waterloo. <clears throat> Suffering was largely confined to the poor, however, while the landed classes And industrialists prospered. So did many merchants who profited from the new markets opened up as the British Empire expanded aggressively compensating with victories against the French for the traumatic loss of America in 1783. England's merchants profited too thanks to the marketing successes that over time converted once exotic imports from these colonies into everyday fare for the english in the 18th century <clears throat> tea and sugar had been transformed in this way and in the 19th century other commodities followed suit the indian muslin for for instance that was a fabric fabric of choice for gentlemen's cravats and fashionable ladies gowns and the laudanum indian which is an indian opium dissolved in alcohol that so many ailing writers of the period appeared to have found irresistible. The West End of London and new seaside resorts like Brighton became in the early 19th century consumers' paradises, sites where West Indian planters and nabobs, a Hindu word that entered English as a name for those who own their fortunes owed their fortunes to Indian gain, could be glimpsed displaying their purchasing power in a manner that made them more or less favourite examples of Nouveau Nouveau rich Nouveau riche of uh, Vulgarity. The word shopping came into England usage in in this era. Luxury villas sprang up in London and the prince's regent who was who in 1820 became George IV, built himself palaces and pleasure domes, retreats from his not very onerous public responsibilities. But even even or especially in private life at home, the prosperous could not escape being touched by the great events of this period. French revolutionary principles were feared by English conservatives, almost as much for their challenge to the proper ordering of the relations between men and women as for their challenge to traditional political arrangements. Yet the account of what it means to be English that developed into reaction to this challenge, an account emphasizing the special virtues of the English, English sense of home and family (coughs) was in its way equally revolutionary. In an unprecedented way, the war that the English waged almost without intermission between 1793 and 1815 had a home front. The menace sanctuary of the domestic fireside became the symbol of what the nation's military might was might was safeguarding. When popularity, the monarchy held on to, during this turbulent period, was thus a function not of the two King Georges' traditional exercise of a monarch's sovereign powers, but instead of the public publicity tailored to suit this national rhetoric that emphasized each one's domestic bliss within a royal family. Conceptions of proper femininity altered as well under the influence of this new idealization and naturalization of the home. This project, as Burke put it, of binding up the constitution of our country with our dearest domestic ties. And that alteration both put new pressures on women and granted them new opportunities. As in earlier English history, women in the Romantic period were provided only limited schooling, were subjected to a rigid code of sexual behavior, and, especially after marriage, were bereft of legal rights. In this period, women began, as well, to be deluged by books, sermons, and magazine articles that insisted vehemently on the physical and mental differences between the sexes and instructed women that because of these differences, they should accept that their roles in life involve child rearing, housekeeping, and nothing more. Of course, in tendering the advice promoters of female domesticity conveniently ignored the definition of duty that industrialists imposed on the poor women who worked in their mills. Yet, a paradoxical byproduct of the connections that the new nationalist rhetoric forged between the well-being of the state and domestic life was that the identity of the patriot became one, became one a woman might attempt with some legitimacy to claim. Within the framework created by the new account of English national identity, a woman's private virtues now had a public relevance. They had to be seen as crucial to the nation's welfare. Those virtues might well be manifested in the work of raising patriotic sons, but as the thousands of women in this period who made their ostensibly natural feminine feelings of pity, their alibi for participation in abolition abolitionism demonstrated, mm-hmm. they could be turned to non-traditional uses as well. The new idea that As the historian Linda Cawley has put it, a woman's place was not simply in the home, but also in the nation. Could also justify, or at least extenuate, the affront to proper feminine modesty represented by publication by a woman's entry into the public sphere of authorship. Blue stockings, educated women, remained targets of masculine scorn, as we have seen. This became, nonetheless, the first era of literary history in which women writers began to compete with men in their numbers, sales, and literary reputations. These female authors had to tread carefully to be sure to avoid suggesting that, as one male critic fulminated, they wish the nation's affectionate wives, kind mothers, and lovely daughters to be metamorphosed, metamorphosed into studious philosophers and busy politicians. And figures like Rollin Stonecraft, who in the vindication of the rights of women grafted a radical proposal about gender equality into a more orthodox argument about the education Women needed to be proper mothers. Remain exceptional. Later, women writers tended cautiously, cautiously, to either ignore her example, or define themselves against or define themselves against it. Only in the Victorian period would Walstone cause of women's rights, rally enough support for substantial legal reform to begin and that process would not be completed until the 20th century. In the early 19th century, the pressures for political reform focused on the rights of men as distinct from women. From 1785 on, the year in which Prime Minister William Pitt, who would soon shift his political allegiances, proposed in vain a bill for parliamentary reform, middle class and working class, class men entering into strategic and short-lived alliances made the restructuring of the British electoral system their, their common cause. Finally, at a time of acute economic distress, the first reform bill was passed in 1832. It did away with the rotten boroughs depopulated areas whose seats in the House of Commons were at the disposal of a few noblemen, redistributed parliamentary representation to include the industrial cities, and extended the franchise. Although about half the middle class, almost all the working class, <coughs> excuse me, and all women remained without a vote, the principle of the peaceful adjustment of conflicting interests by parliamentary Majority had been firmly established. Bef- reform was to go on by stages until Britain acquired universal adult suffrage in 1928. Now I'm going to stop there, and um, and basically um, uh, there's another section of the introduction to go, um, a couple of them, and I'll do that. I'll cover those on on the next podcast. So just to remind you, if you could, um, if you'd like to leave a donation, um, to support this, uh, reading, this reading podcast, David Wellens, David, I'm oh, sorry, David R. Wellens reads literature. Um, just, uh, send a Zell, send a Zell donation, uh, to David R. Wellens at, at gmail.com. And that's David R. Wellens at gmail.com. Your uh, your your donations are greatly appreciated. It'll help me uh, continue this uh, podcast until we cover all of the literature we possibly can. Thank you very much, and have a great day.